0: Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and down the line, as ever, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Good afternoon, Neil. It's great to speak to you again.
1: How are you doing? I'm doing
0: really well, mate. How are you?
1: I'm pretty good, actually. We had a, an open day at the university on, on Saturday, so I had my full charm offensive mode on, which hopefully worked. Um, no, no, it's been it's been good. been watching lots of films, which has been nice. Got the letter. I've half written the uh the letter that's coming coming out for the Patreon subscribers. We've just taped a, a Joker episode, so anybody who wants to listen to our esteemed thoughts on, you know, the the, the film that is... I mean, you know, we, we argued on the episode about its significance, but, you know, it is the film that's being talked about the most, I think, over the last few few months. So if you want our four penneth, then you have to subscribe to the Patreon. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, really, all told. How are you?
0: Same, yeah. Kind of work is... Uh, pootling along nicely um, in, in, in a slightly new role which is good only teaching on film three days a week two days a week I'm research um, which involves running a research program and preparing an impact case study on the, the filmmaking that we do at the School of Film and Television for the ref so yeah that's nice. that's been a nice change um, yeah watching lots of movies caught up with some some recent gems that I'd been long wanting to see so I saw High Life Oh finally, yeah! Did which you like amazing. it? Yeah, oh, it's, it's unbelievable, it's just,
1: isn't it? Unbelievable.
0: Yeah, she's she's on a different plane sometimes, isn't she? She's extraordinary. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah
1: different spaceship sometimes. I think. Yeah, different. Yeah,
0: different planetary plane. <laughs> um, and I saw the old man and the gun as well. Oh, that's, which, that's sweet, isn't it? It's a nice watch. Yeah, now. really lovely, lovely movie. And uh, one that really surprised me was Stan and Ollie with Steve Coogan and John oh, okay. C. Reilly. Just a really sweet and sad, love you know. Just, just you know, again another film where they say oh they don't make them like those anymore um but they yeah just a really lovely film thoughtful interesting yeah kind of good film about friendship and aging and yeah just took me by surprise really enjoyed it the performances are amazing the two of them are just just really really great particularly in the in their kind of performance of laurel and hardy on screen or on stage is really really something else so yeah a nice uh great nice few yeah few yeah. And I've, it's
1: funny because I've, I've been catching up with one of your favorites uh Mia Hanson Love which is you know somebody you're always talking about and it's kind of like I'd, I'd, I'd seen stuff but not really really in the right frame of mind when I was watching them you know because they are sort of slow burn you've got to be focused Movie is very good at the moment isn't it I think there's a lot of good stuff on there and
0: they're showing yeah Mubi's doing great they're showing the father of my children and goodbye first love yeah
1: and, and goodbye first love I was just kind of like it's a film with a story that could be such a cliche in non-delicate hands and it's really interesting after watching um a non-fiction which is the new SAS film with with Binoche and all of that all of the his crew as it were um which is not I don't think it's a film that is definitely for everyone and has got a lot of flaws but it's the kind of film that I you know it's, it's sort of academic people in french wittering on about adultery and stuff which kind of yeah i'm on board for that but um yeah on a different level i think that the me hansen love film is absolutely wonderful kind of cinematic in that really restrained delicate subtle but building this sort of sense of emotional potency and power really great
0: yeah nicely put yeah she's she is magnificent i think and the one film that i that i hadn't seen of hers um apart from the new one was uh was father of my children which i watched the other night which is just yeah like you say how it kind of builds itself to this emotional payoff is just so mesmerizingly handled um, it's also a great film about movie making um and then it becomes this other thing which is and then the yeah the the, the way it, it it plays out is yeah just kind of masterful and it's so invigorating to see her handle material that, like you say, is it's kind of not off off trodden, but feels familiar in many ways. But she makes it unfamiliar. She makes it kind of deeply individual and, and kind of special and kind of strange, which is which is great, yeah. So well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you caught those as well.
1: Awesome. Um so before we get into the um the meat of today's particular episode you also wanted to talk about a uh samuel fuller box set that's been issued that you're you've been reviewing and uh, i know you you wanted to uh, sort
0: of take us through that so yeah masters of cinema are releasing a five film box set called uh, fuller at fox which was his time at 20th century fox making these kind of amazing cinema scope pictures and uh it's a really great collection of films, um, and they sent out three films uh, to sort of to be reviewed, which is Forty Guns, which is the western with uh, Barbara Stanwyck, Helen Highwater, submarine film with uh, Richard Widmark, and House of Bamboo with Robert Stack and Robert Ryan. Which, are, yeah, I mean, just just phenomenal movies. I've never been a huge Widmark fan, um, and I've seen Helen Helen Highwater a couple of times, and there's a lot of really good stuff in it. It's just he's a performer that I've never. Never been able to get on board with that was it was great to see the the transfer because it looks beautiful in you know the cinemascope and all the colors are just amazing but but the other two films are are extraordinary Robert Stack as a kind of a guy who travels to Japan under the aegis of kind of you know looking for his old war buddy but but actually being sort of undercover trying to break up a uh, an organized crime ring run by Robert Ryan is just sensational just you know anything with Robert Ryan I think is is always worth a watch but it's just so so good and fuller called himself like you know an action filmmaker as opposed to a drama filmmaker and just the pacing and you know the camera work and the way he constructs stuff is just it's just fantastic but i think that the gem of the lot is 40 guns um which just looks incredible the pacing of it there's so many great set pieces in it so much audacity in terms of the filmmaking um barbara stanwick is is sensational um as yeah as this kind of woman who runs this this kind of a gang of 40, uh, 40 men at her kind of beck and call for this kind of small town crime ring. Um, and the, uh, the the kind of the lawman who kind of comes in to, uh, to bust it all up is, um, you know, just exhilarating filmmaking from someone who is absolutely, mm. absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, um, and,
1: and you get this sense with Fuller, I always find that it's almost to an age now that doesn't really exist, apart from in a very few films where you know there's a real action sensibility but you can tell that the script has been worked on and worked on and you know things fit together in a way that perhaps you know that we've we criticize films for not fitting together you know as well as they perhaps could do
0: yeah i mean yeah they're so tight they're so lean you know that the biggest things happen in the smallest moments you know it's a real craft yeah you can tell that for whatever the the problems of the studio system the the machine they had to get stuff ready when they had a director capable of of kind of taking it on was was a really really efficient one and made really really great work um, and it's cinematic in every every sense you know this things happen really quickly there's no huge laborious build up you know it's like we'll we'll just get into the story really quickly because we can deliver everything we need to know through a look or a glance or through an edit between two two things which will create meaning like it's just it's so innately cinematic but also thrillingly entertaining and it's just what's interesting is that on the on the box set there's a documentary called a fuller life which was made by his daughter where it's entirely his own archive so it's famous people reading from his memoir and then shots of his his personal archive his personal film and photography and kind of written archive and it's it's not great you know like it feels quite you know Ad, you know is it a bit sort of afi um tv
1: is you know what i mean kind of like retrospective type stuff going on
0: yeah yeah and it really it just it's kind of it's ponderous and slow and you know earnest you know and it's like it's everything that fuller's films are not you know so it feels really yeah sort of disingenuous in that sense and what it made me do is maybe it made me wanted to read his book because the book seems like it's really well written but there's kind of giving it this weight and gravitas which he is a personality and in his films he kind of Really pushes back on, you know. So there isn't this sense of melodrama or, or weight. It's really, really punchy and really, really primal and basic. Yeah. And also, oh, uh, yeah, sorry, good. no, no. Good. no I, was
1: ju- I was just going to say, and of course, Samuel Fuller, greatest cameo in the history of cinema, in Piero
0: Lefu. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the many, one of the many kind of heroes that Goddard picked up on the, in that period. Um. So there is that documentary on the disc, which I didn't really like. But what I did love is that there's a ninety minute. Conversation with Fuller at the NFT in the late '60s, and the audio of that is played over Forty Guns, so you can watch Forty Guns with Fuller talking about his career on stage at the NFT, and it's it's everything the documentary is not. It's really amazing to hear him talk at length about his process, you know, his interest in 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 the types of stories that he's kind of drawn to, that a lot of them, you know, feature newspaper men because he was a newspaper man, but just how he talks about cinema, and then to see. One of his masterpieces, kind of playing out underneath. It's, it reminds me a lot of what we talk about on the podcast. You know how you create an imaginative space with audio, and it just—it's such a simple thing. And you—you you start, you think, well, how is this gonna? How does this kind of fit? Because this is a very specific film. But you slowly get into the watching of it and hearing him talk. That it just—it just kind of makes sense in a, in the sense of if you want to know, if you want to know this person, listen to him talk about a variety of different things, and then see how those things might feed into his work um so it's, yeah that's that's a brilliant a brilliant addition to the to the disc so well worth checking out when it's out early november
1: yeah and leading on from that talking about i think you said creating an audio an imaginative audio sound space that leads us neatly onto today's film so today's episode is centred around an interview with Midge Costin, who is the director of Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. And um, this is a interview that we managed to get set up for the London Film Festival. Midge was over for the screening there. She was on a sort of whistle-stop tour, going to different festivals and screening the movie. So this is obviously from the title. It's, it, it, it's a movie that, that really gets into the importance, the significance and the actual ingrained nature of sound in what we think of of cinema and yeah it was i mean she's really fascinating character really articulate full of energy a graduate of the university of southern california so she has all of that kind of real weight of coming from coming from an environment where you know the the greatest sort of american film, filmmakers have come from and uh, you know her see if you look at her cv on uh, imdb you know she's the sound ed- editor on amazing array of films but that but really sort of 80s action movies things like con air uh, armageddon the rock and we talk a lot about in the interview particularly crimson tide and days of thunder and working with working with tony scott and yeah it's just amazing to me her listening to somebody talk about their sense of why sound is really important but also placing that into the context of the film history that we kind of recognize particularly the sort of emergence of new Hollywood in the ni- in the 1970s. Because I think that, you know, when we talk about cinematic sound, we go back to the late 20s and talk about the emergence of sound. And then, you know, it, it really sort of stays the same. There's just sort of, sort of mono sound recording until we get to the late 60s and 70s. I mean, it'd be interesting to hear what you, you think afterwards about how the film ties into that sort of new Hollywood mythology. But a really interesting film that I really was happy that we, we, we spoke to Midge about.
0: Yeah, I think it's... Uh... I think it's fantastic to be able to, to kind of to put this in our our release schedule. You know, with the with the the interview you got at the LFF, and thanks to Midge for her time. Thanks to Aim Publicity as well for for kind of helping me see it as well as a screener, um, so that we can talk about it. And yeah, a really really fascinating kind of chance to talk about sound, which we don't necessarily do as much as we would like, I guess. So I'm really excited to to kind of get into it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just to say that the film is out on November the 1st, which if you're listening on November the 1st, the episode has just dropped today. So it ties in with that, which, you know, doesn't often happen with us, but it's great that it has happened. So uh, this is myself talking with um, the director, Midge Costin.
2: Sound affects us in a deeper way almost than, than image does. It goes deeper. And yet we're naturally, seemingly oblivious to that.
3: Film sound is an illusionary art as if you're just hearing the natural sounds happening in the world on screen. It's subliminal, and it's a purely emotional way of thinking about a movie.
2: It's stealthy sound work. It's flying under the radar. It's understated.
4: but what sound adds to the picture is so exhilarating that I just was hooked and pretty much never looked back.
1: So I'm in central London at the London Film Festival with Midge Costin, the director of Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. Midge, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us on the podcast. Oh, thank you.
4: I love the interest.
1: How's the festival experience been so far? Oh,
4: fantastic. Well, this unfortunately is too short for me in London. I just came from the Mill Valley Film Festival in California, and that's where a lot of Skywalker people are. Oh, right. Half my cast, I think, was there, which was really fun. And then I'm here, and then I'm going off to Ghent, to the film festival there. Oh, great. So you're kind of on a whistle stop tour. Yes. Sort of... It's yeah. great.
1: And I've just heard that the, B- the BBC is next, but I, I, I like to think that we're more important than the BBC Absolutely. going forward. Um Obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the film, or a lot about the film. And with us being a podcast sound is a really kind of important aspect of that i'm doing some work on on the background of cinematic sound but it's kind of disingenuous to call call this your feature documentary debut i think with your your experience so maybe you could tell us to start with a little something about how you kind of fell into sound it seems reading your your notes as a young filmmaker oh
4: my gosh and i really fell into it because in in film school i Actually, I mean, it would have panic attacks when I had to do sound because I always saw it as a technical thing that came at the end of the movie. Right. And I wasn't getting it as character driven or setting mood and tone and all that stuff. I didn't associate it with story. So I loved story. So I'm coming out as a. Sound as a, I really wanted to be a picture editor, and then uh, so I worked as apprentice assistant. I still had my thesis film left to do, so I'm right. making my thesis documentary, <laughs> and I um, and a friend of mine calls me up and says, Midge, um, no, none of the union guys will touch sixteen millimeter. Um, will you come in, I'll, I'll show you how to cut uh, a sound effects, and I'll cut the dialogue. And so I came in and I, I, as I, as I tell my students, I lowered myself and took a sound job for the money so I could finish my thesis film. Wow. And, um, and then And then on that job, I realized, oh, oh, geez, I've got to, like, set the mood and the tone. And what do I do with character? And how do I show that through sound? And I started to think about it. And then I realized, you know, I have a background in music. Like, I always played the guitar. I like to sing. I was always in chorus in school and, and everything. And I think it triggered that. And also, when I was in the fifth grade, just like a lot of the other sound people that I interviewed, we all got... Recorders, reel-to-reel recorders when we were kids and played with them. And there was a, I, I think it was Walter or something said, between the ages of 11 and 14, whatever you were doing is your kind of like fun or something. Sure. And I think a lot of people in the film industry, the people that I um, interviewed, they all, we all got like recorders or recording or doing something. Sure,
1: yeah. I think it's, it seems like there was a sort of... Uh a cohort of people who maybe didn't get the cameras because cameras maybe were more expensive and then like, okay I'll get the sound recorder and I'll just go and record this Because so, in the film obviously there was people recording the straight from the speakers yes. of the film that they were watching, yes, which is really ben interesting. Hurt.
4: I mean did that, yeah, so it's interesting. So yeah, and the way that so I just fell into sound and then I started to but then as I started working on it and then, you know, we feel like filmmakers because mm-hmm. we're there as the films coming together and then we're thinking of what's the sound aspect? I mean, what's, yeah, what's the sound aspect? We think it's at least 50% of the story. and um, But you just don't think about that when you're first thinking about film. It still gets described as visual storytelling. Sure. And so I just fell in one thing after another. And then... I got into these action adventure movies. Like the first movie that I was on was Days of Thunder, and it's like, and I had you know, like I always say, the bad guy's car, whoever was racing against Tom Cruise, I had his engine, and uh, and then I also did all the NASCAR the races. I was doing kind of the surrounding kind of cars going around and around, and that was it was so fun, and and it was like 5.1, and we're doing surround sound, and it was so exciting. So I just got sucked into it, and then as I'm going along. Um, I realized I was always kind of teaching, uh, you know, and and I, I kind of got disillusioned with um, the right. big action adventure movies because there were just there was so much violence and it was kind of sexist and racist, and I yeah. just thought. Um, but then I thought, wow, I could hand this over to students, you know, and, and teach, and so. But getting pulled into sound because at the time it was just so exciting, you know, at the time. So, so that was that was great, and um, right. yeah, and so I love that. But then to be able to hand that the tools that I have off to other people to filmmakers that was really important so it kind of had that background of looking at how do you teach this stuff sure. you know and that was key. Yeah. So.
1: You just mentioned their Days of Thunder. I was reading your, your sort of back catalogue. You also worked with Tony Scott on Crimson Tide so he must have yeah. been a great director and well, sort of somebody who believed in your work and everything. Yeah,
4: like. well, well, and I worked, George Waters was the supervising sound editor and so it was George who would pull me on really all the time and Tony, what was great about Tony Scott was that he cared about sound and he collaborated well so he would, he would ask, he didn't have to know everything about sound and I think the best directors are, they get great you know, department heads and then they collaborate with them and see them as artists and that's what Tony Scott did. Nice, really nice guy who really respected sound and um, and I loved, Crimson Tide was my favorite because mm-hmm. it was a good story yeah, and yeah, I loved yeah, those yeah. characters and it was like, it was smart. It was like two different types of military men. One who seems like he wants to go to war and one who will do everything to avoid war and I thought it was a brilliant story. I loved, their acting was amazing mm-hmm. and so you want to get sucked into a story that way. We have a properly formatted emergency
3: action message from the National Command Authority for strategic missile launch, Captain. I concur, sir. Get the health etiquette, Captain. Got the EAM. What do you think? I think there's nothing on this. (laughs) Yes, sir. It uh, got cut off during the attack. Then it's meaningless. Sir, this is an EAM pertaining to nuclear missile. No, Mr. Hunter. That's a message fragment because it got cut off during the attack, so the message could mean anything. It could be a message to a board, it could be a message It could be a fake Russian transmission. Which is exactly why we need to confirm, sir. All I'm asking for is the time we need to get back Mm on Calm down, Mr. Hunter. I am calm. You don't appear to be calm. Kahn
2: weapons, missile systems ready to launch in four
3: minutes. Step aside, Seaman. Yes, sir. We have orders in hand, and those orders to make a preemptive launch. Every second that we lose increases the chances that by the time our missiles arrive, their silos could be empty because they'd flown their birds and struck us first. Yes, sir. You know as well as I do that any launch order received without authentication is no order at all. That's Captain, our number one
2: rule. National
4: that me-
3: rule is the basis for the scenario we've trained on time and time again. Yes, sir. It's a rule we follow without exception. Captain, National Military Command Center knows what sector we're in. They have satellites looking down on us to see if our birds are aloft, and if they're not, then they give our orders to somebody else. That's why we maintain more than one sub. It's what they call redundancy. I know about redundancy,
4: Mr. Triner. I realize I go to movies. I just realized this a couple years ago. So somebody tell me the meaning of life. Like, what's your meaning of life? What do you think? And um, so on some of those action-adventure movies, there are roller coaster rides. And it was really my students who had to say, Midge, relax about them. They're like, um, yeah, they're, it's a roller coaster. It's like people are just having fun, and they're over the top. And it's like, oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Oh, it's fascinating! Uh, yeah, and it, it's so fascinating for for me to hear that you've gone. You know, you you were teaching throughout, but you've gone now back to teaching, kind of, yes. and, and which is amazing. If, you, if I told that to one of my students, you know, this this here is this amazing work that this person is doing. All these films, and now they went back to teaching, yeah. they would have have a heart attack. So. Well, because
4: but in school, I'm still we're making films. Yeah. Okay, they're student films. But what's so fun is to tell filmmakers how to make look working on sound you're always going to make the movie better mm-hmm. and so to be able to tell young filmmakers i mean one of my students was Ryan Kugler wow. and he took sound because it was the thing he knew the least about and then he's so funny because he tells a story about how he'd put the boom out and listen to the director talking with the actors the director talking with the you know production designer the you know the dp and the grips talking <laughs> you know, it's like everybody talking to each other and he learned a lot um and so I think now nowadays, like young filmmakers or young people, they're taking pictures since the time they're two on their taking videos for the parents, um, you know. Yeah, you it's know, on everybody's phone, phones, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Right? So that but they don't they know that they don't know about sound. Because unless you studied music, you don't even know what what the words are you don't know how to describe it but we all know color light shade framing you know but when you talk about sound unless you've studied music you really don't know they always say
1: to the the students that i teach it's like the the person who's good in sound gets on everybody's projects you know Mm -hmm. because they want them you know to to add that to the to to the images in a really great way yeah so just reading about how the film came together, you were approached by the seven-time Academy Award winner Gar- Gary Rydstrom right. to do this uh, project. So what what was his sort of brief to you, so No, well,
4: no it, this is how it came about. I, I started... I was going to work on this project in 2002. Right, okay. There was no fair use. So I was... My friend, Wendy Apple, made the editing version and she said... When I talked to her, she said it took her two years to get the rights and I was like, no, nope, that's not filmmaking. To me, that's not filmmaking. So yeah, I like, that yeah. doesn't sound fun. So I... Walked away from the project, and then Bob at Buster was working up at Pixar, with, and Gary Rydstrom, and she met Gary, and they became friends. And she said, "Why hasn't this film been made?" And and um, and she said, "Would you be a consultant?" And he said, "If you got Mitch Coston involved, I would I would be involved." That's so, great. and I knew Gary from the industry, but also from USC, he would come and lecture. You know, and he's brilliant. So, um, yeah.
1: And he, obviously, he's one of the main sort of protagonists, I would say, of the history yeah. of sound. Um, in terms of an art form, along with Walter Merch and Ben Burt, who the three people sort of the the film is structured around I would say. But Do you think then that there was a sort of sense driving the film that these guys, not that they wanted to be, they were fed up for being in the background, but they felt that the sort of artistry of sound was something that hadn't really been told before?
4: That, well, that's really true, and they are really historians of sound. They know the history. I mean, they're just really smart guys and curious, and so they knew. But we all feel like it's like the unsung hero. That's mm-hmm. what I feel like, and we all feel there's a. And I think Gary says this too, but it's like it's there's a good part of like nobody's thinking about sound because then you can kind of manipulate the audience or do these things, and nobody realizes how much you're helping the movie, how, the story, the character, and everything. But then again, then we're not recognized. So sometimes you you never get the budget that you want or yeah. the time and all of that so even on those big action adventure movies do you know that the sound is like one is maybe two or three percent that's high because on most movies this is post-production sound yeah. is usually like one percent of the budget wow. so and and yet these guys are saying it's 50 percent great directors yeah. it's 50 percent of movies so they're students who think about that big bang for your buck big production value but it's sound and one of the ways that gary talks about it and this didn't get in the movie but he, he has said it other times Terminated. to he's trying to figure out how to do the the guy as he goes through things, you know, the sure, metal sure. But, kind yeah, of... The, a, yeah, the sound I, of it going know, through it. Do yeah, you yeah. know that story? That he goes home one night, so he's thinking, he's thinking, oh, what can I use, what can I use? He goes home one night, he feeds his dog, un- does the can, turns the can upside down, the dog food comes out oh of the can <laughs> into the bowl, and it makes that glob gl- gl- sound. That's fantastic. And so he said how many millions of dollars did the visual effect cost, and the sound cost like 49 cents. Hello? Janelle, it's me. John? Yeah, is everything all right? Are you guys okay? Sure, honey, everything's okay. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. John, it's late. Honey, I was beginning to worry about you. If you hurry home, we can sit down and have dinner together. I'm making beef stew. Something's wrong, she's never this nice. John? Where are you?
3: What the hell is the goddamn dog barking at? Hey! Shut up, you worthless piece of shit!
2: The dog's really barking.
3: thought you were going to tell the kid to get rid of that fucking mutt.
4: John, honey, it's late. Please don't make... worry. Can I already be there? Honey, are you okay? I'm right here. I'm fine. Are you sure? Are you sure you're all right?
1: What's the dog's name?
4: Max. Hey, Janelle, what's wrong with Wolfie? I can hear him barking. Is he okay? Wolfie's fine, honey. Wolfie's just fine. Where are you?
1: If the parents are dead. I think the thesis of the film is it 's not merely technical it 's artistic at the same time, which is definitely comes through but also I think there has to be a sort of a technical appreciation but also an appreciation to say of musicianship, but also an imagination to create something that that is going to sound like on screen yes. but but really you know if you recorded it live it wouldn't sound like that at all so the, the, yes. it takes quite a few different facets to be that that personally
4: yes and you have you just need to start thinking consciously have an awareness about sound and a curiosity about what's going to make it sound you know good i have a friend of mine um, victoria martin who i worked with who is a supervising sound editor for george waters and um she i would i would call her up sometimes when i start to teach to say um Uh, Victoria, how did they make this thing? She said, oh, Midge, I never watch, I watch the screen and don't look at what the sounds they're making in the Foley room because it could be something completely different because (laughs) the actual sound of things is not Not how it sounds like and it's all about how the microphone picks it up. And um, so that's a whole yeah. different,
2: yeah.
1: When you show, show students foley, like people doing the foley, they just can't believe some of the stuff that they use. It's, right. it's hilarious. Well,
4: <laughs> in our movies, like they always crack up it. They see Allison Moore take a pine cone and yeah. break the pasta. And then it's, uh, uh, in Inception, he's walking under the glass. Yeah, and you see
1: with the horror movies, the hacking of vegetables and stuff like that. It's all yeah, <laughs> hilarious. It seems that there's, there's a, a, an interesting paradox in terms of the way that, film uh, sound in its experimental phase, sort of in the 60s and 70s, you know, when Merch was working on Apocalypse Now, or yeah, and Star Wars particularly, that this is in the period of that sort of 70, uh, 70s new Hollywood when, you know, there's a lot of experimentation, yeah. but that was kind of imported from... Europe with the whole idea of their auteur director. Yes. But it's kind of but it's kind of a paradox that a lot of the directors that you were talking about, you know, George Lucas and Spielberg, they give so much credit to to these the sound guys as part of the no, it's the sound guys as part of their collaborative artistic process. So it's it's interesting how they were sort of drivers of innovation, not just collaborators in many
4: ways. Yes. Well, I would say, so Walter Merch really was influenced by the French New Wave. And mm. so not only, he knew that they were doing something different, but then he took that to do something different also in terms of the sound process. And the sound process, like making waves, yes, it's about sound waves and that, but it's also making waves is that it was these guys who did it differently. So it was Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, and Walter Murch leave Hollywood to do it their own way. And they took sound as seriously as... As anything as the picture, but in yeah. Hollywood you didn't do that. You you did it at the end. You mm. know, it was more like an end process. And as Ben Burt says somewhere, it's like a factory, mm. and you just kept using the same sounds over and over. And um, yeah, so so it was different. And mm. they did.
2: When I was the kid growing up, one of the composers who was doing the most advanced thinking at the time was John Cage. He was proselytizing that everything is music. Even the sound that the audience makes in the theater is music. And even the sound of the lid of the piano going down is a kind of music he made us pay attention. So in The Godfather, the moment leading up to Solazzo's death, Is accompanied by this screechy John Cagey sound. (laughs) What you're actually listening to are Michael's neurons clashing against each other as he's making the decision to actually kill these people and the murder of a dream he had of having nothing to do with the family. It's not technically music, but it conjures up emotion and meaning. But I just want to say, it's never sound for
4: sound's sake. I do think that if you, you know, looking at the movie too, it's the directors or the drivers. The story's the driver. Sure. And then the director cares enough that they have a sound collaborator who works on it. And they give them the script. Yeah. They talk about it before and they take their ideas Mm. and they work together.
1: And it seems to me also that a film like Star Wars, for example, that is one of the films that credited, along with Jaws, as a sort of... Beginning of the rebirth of the blockbuster era. And it seems to me that those films with the special effects wouldn't work unless this incorporation of the stereo and then the 5.1 to immerse the audience. Into the into the experience, it it had to have that sound in, in order that the big spaceship scenes and everything would work.
4: Yeah, but the funny part is, well, that started out. I mean, that was just stereo, mm-hmm. you know. And also, Godfather, which was amazing, you know, for for a film and had great sound. And it was like that was mono, sure. and what well, that blew <laughs> me away because I didn't realize it. And all, because we're not hearing these films mono anymore, but we heard them originally. But yeah. we were so used to hearing things that way. And um, but even and i've worked i worked with one of the the guys that did the sound on the original star wars and um, he was telling me about how what it was like to do the first kind of stereo one of the first you know major films It was like stereo- everything was stereo yeah. um, so that was like really important but it wasn't surround and now yeah. of course it sounds great and that's how everyone is hearing yeah, it yeah. and it but it, it but i also think it's just that you got to get the right sound but it yeah. definitely helps that the technology has Really yeah. advanced too, but that was all. That's what I love about Apocalypse Now. They'd only worked on mono before that. All three of them: Richard Beggs Mark Berger, and uh, and and Walter Murch. And it wasn't until Apocalypse Now, and it was really Francis Ford Poplar heard that Tomita, yeah. that quad, you know, album, and we had, we tracked that down to find that quad sound. like okay they had to make up like that's the album that was
1: designed to have like four speakers four speakers around around the room and then you
4: sat in the middle and then Francis said I want my movie to sound like this you know it's really funny but we didn't have time to include it in the film Francis thought this is the whole new way we're going to hear that he thought that they were going to put the movie into a theater in Kansas and people would come like Disneyland to hear that because it would be the only film that was ever sound
1: Yeah, it's interesting. That, like it goes back to the beginning of cinema, doesn't it? When when sound first came into being from the silent era, that all the theaters had to be kind of readapted, and that's why there was so much pushback yes. against that.
4: So much pushback, and that's the whole story. With um, okay, so you go back to you go back to Murray Spivak with um, King Kong in nineteen thirty three, which is the, what Ben says is like the first film that we think of as a sound designer. <laughs> Let's go. They had to hide him in the music department. See, he was a percussionist yeah, on yeah. silent film, so he was in the music department. They had to hide him in the music department because guess what, the producer, I hope I'm not offending producers, please, I apologize. <laughs> I said, I'll never work in film again anyway. I guess I have to teach. Um, so, but they, it was like the producers saying, they would have said, oh, don't bother with all that. And then the same thing, it's like, Yohan Allen was one of the head engineers for Ray Dolby, and he, so we're in Hollywood, it was only mono sound. And then, um, Yoan says to Ray, I mean, what about we get into um, movies, and he says, well, you go check it out. So Yoan goes around to the studios and they all say, sounds good, but no, we don't really need that. Because why? It would have cost them money to, trans- to transfer everything over to this new system of sure. stereo, yeah, yeah. noise reduction. And then it's, Barbara Streisand was working on A Star Is Born, Stanley Cooper on Clockwork Orange*. And a year or so later, it's um, Gary Kurtz and George Lucas working on Star Wars.
3: I knew I had to figure out a way of making these characters real. And I knew it depended on how we developed these languages. And that's what Ben spent the better part of a year doing. We were trying to find an animal that had enough vocal expressiveness in its sounds that we could use it for the Wookiee. So there was a young bear named Pooh, and we spent an afternoon with this bear in a pen, coaxing it to say different sounds. The way they got it to make sound was to show it bread. It loved bread. The bear would... And then you'd give him the bread, and then he'd be like... George wanted to know before they filmed the movie, how would the Wookiee sound?
2: Well, you said it, Chewie.
3: This is not the way that most filmmakers worked at that time. I knew the sound was part of the foundation of what the movie was going to be. So everything had to have been figured out way ahead of time.
4: Well, they had enough power, and we're going to make them money. That then they could see yeah, that yeah, you know, we should do light, this. But Barbara Streisand didn't know that. She didn't know it until we uh, until I told her. She just thought that it was an option anyway, mm. and she said, no, 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 we want this for the, for the movie, and yeah. so that was kind of cool. And she was
1: actually kind of instrumental as a star, sort of pushing that this has to sound perfect yes. on a star as one, because right. obviously it was about she her voice. About, yeah. yeah, but the crowds
4: too, she yeah, wanted yeah. them to sound, she wanted you to feel surrounded like you were in a, in a um, yeah, you were in a, in a concert. Well, she's brilliant she also had like I knew who cut this the dialogue most directors don't even know dialogue editing and she would call up the dialogue editor Terry dormant and and say Terry wants to use this half of this sentence and this half of the other and take this word from It was like she's brilliant. Yeah. I Like you belong, but don't push good.
1: Talk a little bit about the structure of the film, because obviously there's a historical element from the pioneers, and then there's this then there's this kind of I don't want to call it an educational element because that sounds like a criticism when it isn't. But and then later on you get into sort of a few more personal assertions about that you know how the how these edit sound and guys and and women sort of felt about doing the job. But did you have a very clear sense of the shape of the film? Well, no,
4: that's one of the Okay, this took us nine years to make. We didn't st- We start. We shot from the 2013 to 16, and a lot of it was structurally. It's like I knew I wanted certain elements, and I knew I, we, the history was a given. So, if, but if we did just the history and we started with silent movies, that takes a long time to get to interesting sound. So at the beginning, we do this thing like we pull you in and you know, yeah, yeah. look at it Private Ryan because that's you know compelling oh, sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so then we do the history, but. But then I really wanted to do what we do now. And I wanted to show all those different elements, right? But how do you do that? It, honestly, for the longest time, it was like, that's a different movie. So we've got this... How do we pull those parts together? So these, what happened was the, that we took that circle of talent and we planted it early on. We planted it in right at the, at the beginning with Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. And then we planted it with... Um, it's an apocalypse now. It was really... Walter Mert's talking about that his film, doing sound, it was like an orchestra. The different, mm. you know, the different kind of. It's um, really simple and effective that. Yes, yeah, that, and so that way it kind of pulled things together. So it didn't feel like the history was one part, and now we're in this other section of. So that element, that one visual kind of element, mm. helped us pull those together.
1: Yeah, no, it's. Really, I, I think it re- works really well, and then the the allusion to the gender issues, I think, is really interesting because you know obviously you, you you touch upon that and then when we get to the end there's a lot more women working in 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 sound design and sound editing but it's not pushed too much so I don't know, how did you think about, you know, how yes. am I going to put this in without it being yes. sort of... I don't know, it seemed like it was like, yeah, it's going to be in there, it's important, but it's not going to frame everything as it
4: Exactly. Was. I could make a whole movie on the gender breakdown, yeah. just in sound alone, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and I did ask questions, both men and women, and so there's a whole, uh, there's so much that we had to leave out. But it was important for me to put it in because I am one, I was one of the few women cutting sound, like sure. in, cutting sound effects in Hollywood as opposed to dialogue and foley. Right. And, um, and, also, and usually when you were, it used to be when you were a dialogue editor, uh, you needed to get a chance to supervise. And now that's kind of changed too. But um, but not that much has changed. There still aren't that many women. I include Eileen Lee in yeah. the film, and she's one of the most brilliant sound designers right now. But what happens with women a lot of times is they get pushed into doing smurfs and yeah. kids movies right. and all that and, and it's, so it it's dialogue still dialogue
1: heavy as well the women were more dialogue the men are more explosions or exactly. you know that kind exactly. of
4: thing i know and so and that and and so being one of the women that would do those things but i love that they talk so oh, i did sure, just sure. put a little bit because i didn't of you course. know it's important it, to mention it and also i really also wanted to get that human element of it's important about collaborating and working mm. together and then ben with this breakdown it's like i i thought yeah. i mean that was brilliant that he gave us that moment and it's because we do work such long hours and that's true for everybody now in all different businesses and it's like i think and i talk to my students about it it's important to think about the balance and you have to remember it's only a movie yeah, is what we, what we always say good stuff
1: with um, with Cece Hall and the Top Gun doing the you know using the animal roles to yeah. get the because the plane said, the plane sounded wimpy and then and then it was really poignant sort of Bobby Banks talking about Selma yeah. and how it sort of yes. you know play on her memories of growing up being an African American yes. woman
4: yes and so we wanted to put that into it's really important for people to see themselves um, in the movie and Bobby and I worked on a bunch of films together and so she's it was that was really great.
3: Uh, Dr. King, Warner, doctor, can you get a statement please? While rageful violence continues toward the unarmed people of Selma, while they are assaulted with tear gas and batons like an enemy in a war, no citizen of this country can call themselves blameless for we all bear a responsibility for our fellow men. I am appealing to men and women of God and goodwill everywhere, white, black, and otherwise. If you believe all are created equal, come to Selma. Join us. Join our march against injustice and inhumanity. We need you to stand with us.
4: You know, too, I think that that's an important element. I just want to say, when I was showing this, I showed it, I think we were just about finished, I showed it at USC in a class, and the, the student body at the USC film school is very diverse, and it was really the African-American woman who came up crying at the end of the film, makes wow. me cry a little bit thinking about it, and hugging me and saying thank you, and then I thought after, oh my God, it was, Bo-, including Bobby, I mean, I did it intentionally, but including Bobby and Greg um, yeah. Hedgepath and, and that film, and, and it, was, it was important because we do care about a friend of mine also said, it's, it doesn't matter what film you work on, but we still do our best no matter what. And a friend, uh, Karen Spangenberg, has worked on She said, it doesn't matter if you work on Ernest Goes to Camp or, um, or Arma, uh, Amadeus. You know, you do the same job. And she worked on both of those. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's really great.
1: Really interesting to kind of listen to those guys sort of talk about what sound art means to them. And it sort of brings me to my last question in, in terms of your... Your overall thesis of the film is like, sound is this absolute you know, fundamental element of, of the cinematic art in its own right, equally important to the visual ima- images. But I was struck by one of the things that you said in your notes, um, when you were talking about that idea of, of trying to teach people how to listen. Yeah. That's interesting in terms of the, the notion of sitting down as an audience member and just thinking, oh, that was a great film that I watched. Because nobody ever says that was exactly. a great film that you I listened listen to, to and I think you do that a little bit with the film for yeah.
4: sure. Yes, I know and it's um, it's true that well, even when I watch a film like people will say um, oh it must ruin it for you, a film. It's like no, I get so sucked into the film because hopefully sound is working, is integrated so much into the film that you don't notice, you don't get pulled out so you're looking at story and character and you, you are hearing the mood and the tone being set by those things but you're not thinking it doesn't pull you out of story so that's the whole point so then I have to always go back and like look at the film you know a lot of times I'll know just mm-hmm. what they did but it doesn't pull me out but what I hope happens and what people have been saying is it does make them think more about sound and how is sound affecting this but I'll also have my students will come back and say oh my god my neighborhood I never knew such-and-such such was going that there's a rooster or that my refrigerator is so loud at my home and I just hope that people come away thinking how important sound is to them and how emotional it is and it's kind of that music concrete thing that it does set a mood and a tone. I, I know that I choose restaurants based on how how they sound and what the <laughs> oh, lighting is right <laughs> and it's just like it can be so uncomfortable to be in places that are too loud or yeah. don't sound good and I hope that it does help people think about the effect sound has in their lives and how important hearing is. Yeah.
1: Richard Costin, thanks very much for your time. Thank
4: you so much it was really great talking with you. What sound adds to picture is so exhilarating.
0: It's really half the movie. Movie's sight and sound. You only express it with sight and sound. The point is
3: to convey an emotion. Film sound is an illusionary art. sound, in many ways, is more tied to imagination. Film sound work wasn't always like that, with dozens of sound editors editing thousands of tracks. But when it all started, movies were silent. Then, in 1927, they actually recorded dialogue on the set.
2: Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet.
3: And, of course, it was a gigantic sensation. Sound was taking root in a new American renaissance of movies in a way that had never been heard before.
2: We were exploring the unknown. It's been very valuable in the evolution of humans' relationship to the cosmos. Your
4: job is to come up with the unimaginable.
3: You want the audience to feel the pain. Sound is still the best way to experience emotion
4: It's part of being human when you feel those goosebumps then you've done
2: it right
0: it's the single most labor-intensive editing process I've ever experienced
3: the work you all do makes these moments eternal.
1: Okay, so yeah, really enjoyed that that talk. I was just disappointed I didn't get any more time. It was one of those, um, as I was joking in the interview, the BBC was after us, which is always nice. But um, yeah, it was great to Finally talk to her. Finally you've made it, Darren. BBC, no, I'm, I'm you know. I'm, I'm, no, I'm I, mean never...
0: that, I mean that you're ahead of the BBC. Oh, though, well, I mean.
1: you know, I, in my own head I already am, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and again, it was just, it was so funny sort of talking to her and being in that, we were in, a, in like a hotel boardroom, so it was very echoey. So I got the micro- tried to get the microphone right up, but it's still a little bit of echo there, I'm afraid. So I was just disappointed. Could you not
0: fix that as a sound? Designer? Well, I was, I was,
1: I was, that's what I was saying. It's kind of like, oh my god, the, the, you know, we're doing this episode on sound, and my recording isn't that brilliant. So anyway, I'm going to give myself a free pass. But, but Neil, what did you think of the film?
0: I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, yeah, it, you know, just hit a lot of sweet spots for my my kind of formative taste, particularly. Um, and I thought there were some really really lovely elements of it I I love the what you're talking to there about that kind of breakdown of the different elements of sound and how it's put together and, and how you know when we think of sound it's not just one thing it's it's a variety it's a combination you know which watching it someone who teaches filmmaking saw a lot of really useful resource stuff in there but also just some some really clear and fascinating examples which was great it was a lot of the little things which I really enjoyed so you know the the kind of the personal element. You know, the, so the, the guy was talking about a river runs through it, and how the sound and the sound of the river kind of connected him to his dad and fishing. I thought that was really beautiful, and like so much of kind of watching and studying film, it's those little moments that kind of change how you see or in this case hear films so when talking about Foley and, and the guy who went to get his his keys you know for the chains in Spartacus was just a delight you know and then seeing that scene and, and realising it's keys and-, and other little things such as uh, yeah kind of like water and as I mentioned it River Runs Through and then that, the wind in Brokeback Mountain and how the wind the is wind a character you know so there's so many little things like that which were just really really wonderful um, the participants was great you know just all the people that you expect to see and want to see in a in a kind of uh, a film about, sa- you know, sort of film sound was were present and correct, which was great. That said, there were there's a number of things that just kind of struck me as kind of odd or kind of frustrating with it. And I, I often find with documentaries where, you know, a lot of the stuff and this is so this is a purely someone who's taught film sound in a kind of theoretical sense and the kind of history of it when teaching filmmaking, a lot of the stuff I kind of knew. So I was kind of just wondering who's it for, you know, like who who is, who is the audience? Cause I think a lot of that stuff is going to be common knowledge for the kind of audience that might be drawn to a documentary like this. We're not say it's bad, but it feels very, it felt very traditional and not necessarily as dynamic as it could have been given the subject uh, in order to, to I, I'm not sure who's going to be sold on this idea. I think one of the big problems I have when teaching is that, you know, students just ignore sound completely as a, as a facet you know they don't take it seriously they don't think it's it has much of a role to play and, and this is a film which should should convince them otherwise but I'm not sure it necessarily will because it feels mm. quite earnest you know? yeah I get, I get what you're saying it's interesting
1: because um, we' were sort of talking about this at the very end about the thesis being this is a film that that she intends to make the audience listen to films as much as watch them and I think that that it it's interesting you say. It's like who is the who is the audience? Because I think it is you know it is it's a broad history and it's the kind of it's the kind of film. And I don't know what the theatrical release is like in the UK, particularly or the US for that matter. I mean, I know it's showing in the UK at, at the BFI and stuff like that. But I think that I mean, I found found it interesting in terms of those particular moments. And I think it's it's great to hear and see films that everybody will be familiar with. Do you know what I mean? And I think that that people will watch it for that, and that, you know, just to see how the the lightsaber sound was made and who made it, and you know, the surround for Apocalypse Now, the opening sequence, and stuff like that. And you know, I think these kinds of everybody still is in love with that, with those those seminal films and those canonical films. And that's one of the things about that. Does it does it sort of reiterate or reassert that mythology of New Hollywood? in a way that doesn't maybe challenge it enough. But it, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's interesting that, that maybe there isn't anything to challenge in that sense. I mean, uh, you know what I mean? Because if, that's, if those are the guys who invented it, then what are you challenging? It's just, it's just you know what I
2: mean?
0: <laughs> I think that, yeah, when you sort of say it's broad, see, I didn't think it was broad. Like I thought it should have been called the you know, the art of American cinematic sound because it's, it's all about a particular lineage of, there's no female filmmakers in there. There's no other types of sound design or sound imagination than, than that Hollywood context. There's no Kurosawa. Mm. There's no Claire Denis.
1: No, I know. I know what you mean <laughs> you know, in that, in no, that sense. The, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Do you know what I mean? And there's not even any horror. You know, like the amount of. So, I don't necessarily think that that the the significance of those those. Pioneer should be challenged because it's amazing, you know, and it really did change the experience of of being in a cinema space and the experience of those films. And it is, but I felt like like a lot of American documentaries, it's like, well, this is everything, and what what, what was missing felt felt important here because it, it started such an interesting idea. And what was interesting was like kind of inadvertently, almost kind of undermining Coppola and scorsese when they're talking about what these films are now and you look at this 70s period particularly and then into the 80s and like people like ben Burt and what they did which was it's make it bigger and even merch you know make it bigger make it more make the experience bigger make it more visceral make it more immersive you know and it's like it's just it's, it's going up and up and up and up and up to the point where it's purely experiential <laughs> and not necessarily with those guys but in terms of what what happens with that technology and with that way of doing things, and that that just was kind of ironic really, after the couple of weeks we've just had where it's all about what we can do that's big and then very little about what we can do that's 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 small or or you know kind of taking that stuff out and stripping that stuff out and kind of and what's not necessarily I felt like at some point it's a bit confused between what sound is and what sound technology is, but that's again that's me, and that's my own personal what i would like from a film like that's not it's no i I can see what the film is doing apart from like i say the title it it kind of felt like a really you know and and also something that should be a film that should be made about these people who were pioneers and did change the experience of watching films at that level Um, and the trickle down effect from that is massive in a way that uh, so much of the experience of watching those films is in the sound that you know again it undermines this idea of the auteur and who these people are because these were almost auteurs of sound that were doing this, you know, which I think is really important.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I th- I got the same impression, actually, which is co- all that that kind of irony that, you know, the, the the notion of the master director, the auteur, you know, and it, it just doesn't exist unless you've got these soundscapes that can accompany these big auteur movies. And and I think, I'm, I mean, I misspoke a little bit when I said it was broad. I think it's aimed at a broad audience who are broad of, you know, of... of euro-american audiences who will just recognize the fact that that star wars and apocalypse now and and terminator 2 and you know the big other action movies from the 80s and you know i I just thought it was wonderful like for example when you're talking about the um about top gun you know and 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 trying to record the jet engines he said the jet engines actually sounded really bad so we went out and got some lions and and sort of remastered the lions to make these and just stuff like that and it's the other irony I got is like, you know, we've just been talking about The Joker and, and you know, we're always sort of sort of slight, slightly criticizing, let's say, blockbuster movies. But it seems that there's so much cinematic art going on within the sound design of, of the big action blockbuster movies because it is that immersiveness. And I remember being at a conference and we were talking about this idea of the 2D screen. And, you know, you think about we went through that period, maybe, oh God, it must be about five to ten years ago now where 3D was everybody was saying 3D was going to be the next thing and this attempt to immerse the images all around us and it's kind of like sound has been doing this 360 immersive thing since the since the 60s and 70s uh, but we still have that almost phenomenological separation where the, the screen is over there and doesn't immerse us you know what I mean I mean to, to a degree in terms of the physicality of it it's still a two-dimensional screen and yeah the auditorium is set up to, to try to get us to immerse ourselves in the film world as much as possible and widescreen does that and everything like that. But then still, this, when we have surround sound, the, the sound is actually all around us. So, so I know people, there are quite a few people who don't actually like surround sound because having sort of helicopters whizzing behind you doesn't make sense really in, in the physical space of a 2D screen, you know?
0: Yet it's, it's more how we, that it's closer to how we navigate the world yes you know i'm looking at you on a 2d screen yes and behind me i can hear the washing machine and realize that i've come downstairs and haven't closed the door you know um <laughs> but i'm gonna i'm gonna go with the claire denis mode of sound design and say that that was intended and that i'm looking for that verisimilitude of life kind of bleeding in from the fringes and, and whatnot um but yeah but that's it you know i think that's why the sound design i love that because it feels like my experience you know in that i i look forward but the I never escape things bleed in from everywhere in terms of the sound. I have a peripheral vision, but I can't see behind me, but I can always hear behind me, yeah, you know, and I love that that depth of experience, which is what you know so much of the great sound design that that's covered in the documentary sort of reminds us of is is it's created it's put us in a space and it's used sound to do that so that the screen doesn't have to and then while it might have created a slightly incongruous experience for a lot of people that I think that time has help people get more and more attuned to like seeing a a different types of screen is going to be much more jarring I think than having different types of sound Mm. and the way that sound is used at least personally yeah
1: so when you were watching it were there any sort of examples that came to mind that you thought to yourself oh this is a great Example of, of a, a film with amazing sound that, that I liked because of the sound. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it's interesting just to go back to the film for a second, you know, this separation of the different elements of sound. So you can talk about the score, you can talk about the music, but then you've got to incorporate things like the dialogue and how the dialogue is recorded and then the sound design. So the, the design in terms of the sound effects, but also the mixing together of everything. And then you've got Foley. So there's all these different constituent parts. So I was trying to rack my brains up to think of examples or where I look back and I think, oh yeah, the sound of that is great. When, it, when I'm not actually talking just about the music fits seems to fit together with what I'm seeing on screen.
0: Yeah, the main example that, that came to mind was, was Punch Drunk Love and the conversations that I had at the time about it. And I mean, I love the film weren't you? But, but but the sound of the film felt to me what it felt like falling in love sounds like, you know, like it's so... Tense and anxious and exciting, but there's always this feeling of being on edge and, and wanting something to click and wanting something to happen and feeling kind of really vulnerable and out there and everything is heightened to the nth degree. sound design in that film put so many people off it because they were like oh it's just noisy and it's jarring and it's like yeah it feels kind of vibrant and alive in the way that 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 love story that's unfolding on screen and and Barry's internal life in terms of how he's cut himself off and has to come out of himself in order to and what that means in terms of showing his true self to this person who's you know who's kind of starting a relationship with just it felt so much like the sound was was telling the story um, at every level, so that the not just the music, the John Bryant score is is incredible, but but everything felt up in the mix. You know, everything felt like it was gonna really startle. But then that score is so plaintive and romantic and lush, you know, and it's it's that combination between the the level of everything and these really jarring sounds and this kind of old Hollywood romantic score, which just just created this incredible experience in terms of the sound. i has always stayed with me, and it's always a film. And that, I, I guess that's what I was one of the disappointing things about the documentary was like I wanted more where you know the the less spectacular uses of sound where it's 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 use of sound to convey something on a smaller dramatic level which is you know still really really cinematic I thought I thought it it kind of missed a trick a trick there and then I sort of mentioned Denis there and thinking about you know what we talked about when we talked about the you know Claire Denis we did the episode on uh, Let the Sunshine In and and her understanding of cinematic language and how sound plays a part in that and it's hard to think of specific examples from films but always the sense of when I watch the films and I watched High Life as I sort of mentioned recently was the sense of I'm hearing things that are having an impact and I can't necessarily untangle what they are or what they are in real terms or what they are in terms of the the film but they. There's there's something always going on in in the audio which is which is telling me something and giving me something. They were the two that, that kind of stood out, and then things like the sound of the arrows in um, Earth, Throne of Blood, you know, Kurosawa's kind of arrows, which are just—they they don't sound like arrows. They're not hitting the wood like you—you know—it goes back to this thing of like it's not—it's not quite what you expect it to sound like. You know, it is a design. It is meant to do something other than be a realistic portrayal of arrows hitting wood or flesh or armor. You know, there's there's a there's an intent to the sound, which is really key. And yeah, just to finish, is that kind of note, which I did think about when the keys and the foley and like what what is a sound in a film is that moment at, right at the very end of the apartment where Shirley McLean's running up to to CC Baxter's apartment and she's halfway up the stairs and she hears this. Bang, and it sounds like a gunshot. And you think, you know, because he thinks that she's left him, and that's it. You think he's kind of killed himself, and she gets to the door and she's banging on, banging on, banging on. (laughs) fine all over door and he opens the door and there's an open bottle of champagne and the you realize it's the cork but it doesn't sound like a cork you know it sounds like a gunshot in the in the the kind of the chaos of the scene and it's just such a beautiful moment and the i love the way that she's running up the stairs this swelling romantic score again it's like this is the moment where they're going to be reunited it's the end of the film you know the lovers are going to get together and there's this bang which interrupts and you just think, oh my god, you know, tragedy has kind of struck. And then, because it's Billy Wilder, it's a kind of bittersweet of comic moment. It's just, again, just a really beautiful use of sound to, to puncture and create kind of dramatic effect, which I love. So, yeah, it, and that was one of the great things about that documentary is that it kind of reminds you of those moments in films where you've had great experiences that are driven by the sound and not, not driven by the image, which is a reminder again of how important sound is to the experience. So did you have a similar thing when you were watching it? Were there kind of examples you were like, oh, this, I love this bit or this, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't, I really watched it in the vein of understanding where where the director was coming from in her context of, of you know, she was in, in California, in Hollywood. That's what the, the the film is, what it's about. And that's what her background is. So I, I understand in terms of, yes, yeah, some of the smaller moments and, and some of those little moments, of odd sounds that were used was just just gold dust I think in the documentary but but even like you know I really enjoyed listening to the, how they put together the uh, the surround sound for Apocalypse Now for the first one it was the Tamita album and um, and I was trying to think about the first time I'd I'd sort of I know I, I've got Apocalypse Now on the Redux and the, and I or, or put the 5.1 and it's great but I think the the, the the last time I really got that effect of the surround and and it drew me into the film was gravity. And, you know, cause there was that amazingly punctured score, which is so powerful and the things whizzing around it. It's all done through communications, obviously it's in space, so you get that crackling and stuff like that, but then you, you don't get the sound effects of the, the things in space crashing into each other. That's totally silent, but then there's this amazing score on the top of it. So it's a really odd, but experienced, but just totally thrilling.
2: Dr. Stone requesting faster transport. We have to go, we
3: have to go, go, go. reports meteorological conditions. do go. Houston,
4: Explorer, copy. Explorer, Dr. Stone requesting faster transport to Bay Area. Explorer, new you copy?
3: Explorer, permission to retrieve Dr. Stone.
4: Your go for it. Houston, Explorer, copy. All
3: right. Get the hell out of here. Right. Need some help there, man. No, don't wait for us. Man down. Man down. Explorer's been hit. Explorer's been hit. explorer hit. explorer Astronaut is off structure. Dr. Stone is off, off structure. Dr. Stone detach. No. You must detach. Ah. If you
1: don't detach, that arm's going to carry you. To. Another one was the, and they mentioned this in the film, is The Conversation, which is, you know, the archetypal film where sound recording becomes a narrative aspect of the film and whether how something is recorded and what you actually hear may not be the context of what you really thought you hear and it it sort of underpins the narrative, even though, look, when I've watched The Conversation now... Narratively, that's a little bit clunky, but I love the scenes with Gene Hackman kind of fiddling around with uh, the different microphones at different parts of the of this uh, square where the opening conversation takes takes place. I
4: think same thing. What do you think? I always think that he was once somebody's baby boy. See? I do, I think. He was once somebody's baby boy, and he had a mother and a father who loved him. And now, there he is, half dead on a park bench. Where are his mother, his father, all his uncles now? Anyway, that's what I always think. How's he doing up there? I always think how oh, when they had the
0: rules... Are we getting better than 40%? about the second position?
2: not so good. <laughs>
1: and then there's some amazing sort of jazz ragtime that that he cuz he plays the saxophone in the in the film and that's kind of cut in here and there which is is really great and that's murch's walter murch's as well um and then you know just just thinking about the smaller things for example the the things like the the phone calls on all the president's men is just it's, it's the best use of, of, of landlines in a movie, you know, because what it's doing is they, they always stay in the one shot. You never see what's going on with, at the other end of this phone call. And there's that great scene with Dustin Hoffman where he's trying to get some information from, from I think it's a White House librarian, and he, he says, can I have this, that and the other? And she sort of says, yes, of course. And, and then she comes back and he says, oh, um, actually, I don't have those. Actually, they don't exist.
4: White House library.
3: Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember any books that a Howard Hunt checked out uh, on Senator Kennedy?
2: Howard Hunt? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, uh, I think I do remember. Uh-huh. He took out a whole lot of material. Why don't you hold on, and I'll see.
3: I sure will. Thank you very much.
2: Bernstein. Yes, ma'am. I was wrong.
3: I beg your
4: pardon?
2: The truth is I don't have a, a, a card that says Mr. Hunt to any material.
4: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, I, uh, I don't remember getting the material for... I do remember getting the material for somebody, but it wasn't for Mr. Hunt. All right. The truth is I didn't have any requests at all for Mr. Hunt. Oh. Uh, the truth is I don't know any Mr. Hunt. Um. Uh,
3: uh, I was just wondering if any, uh, if
1: you have any books to. Can... Hello. And it's like the silence and the phone call, and he's writing down all the all of these notes, and it's just wonderful to see those guys acting on the phone and the and the sound of that conversation. It just just works to to amplify the kind of paranoia I think, and the sense that something is going on behind the scenes, you know. And talking about the way that scores work. I mean, I saw Monos the other day and and I totally agree with what you were saying that that, that film, I, I kind of wasn't as, as sold on it as I think of some people had be, but be, but the score, the Mika Levy score just amplifies it or takes it to another level where, and it's very similar to Under the Skin where she sort of creates that otherworldly eeriness and, you know, it's a different score entirely um, aesthetically, but... There's a sort of sense in which that that the, the, there is a somebody who knows how to use score and sound design to create a, a an almost sort of parallel universe even though it's something we recognise, but it's kind of, where is that? You know what I mean? It was very, very sort of jarring. And um, I love the the end... I always remember the end of Outlaw Josie Wales because there's so many great scores in Westerns, obviously, with Morricone and all that. But at the end of Josie Wales, he... At the end of the story, he's kind of had this big gunfight battle and then he catches up with the guy who he's trying to take revenge on, one of the one of the bluecoat soldiers on the opposite army. And he's run out of bullets, so he just kind of follows him round this deserted town, cocking the gun and, and, and pulling the trigger with a snap, so you get this snap, snap. And it's just... Absolutely brilliant because he just does it over and over and over again, and you just know that the, the death is coming at the end. So that's another great example that that I really like. Yeah, and just to finish off, just in terms of a combination of everything together, I, I just think you can't beat Jaws. <laughs> Jaws is just absolutely awesome, and we watched it the the other night because I just discovered it was on Netflix, and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to put that on for two hours to to, to um, you know because forget the world, why not? <laughs> And there's those scenes where, where the, the three of them are on the boat and he first turns up. I mean, it's essentially, the you're going to need a bigger boat scene and the sort of dialogue and the combination of the music and then you know the theme of the shark. But then it's, it's the beautiful score around that from John Williams and it's just absolutely perfect, you know, mainstream filmmaking. It's a perfect mainstream film, is Jaws, for me. Slow ahead,
3: if you please. You heard him?
2: Slow ahead.
3: I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chump some of this shit. You're gonna need a bigger boat.
1: Get off that engine.
3: Five, three tons on
2: you're gonna
0: need a bigger boat right but there we go yeah no absolutely um yeah one of those one of those examples where everything's on point you know uh, there's not there's not an ounce of fat on it anywhere in any department uh we had um lynn ramsey sound designer down this week paul davies who did a great masterclass. Um, His CV is astonishing. Um, Hunger for Steve McQueen, 71, for Yann Damage, The Proposition, and all of Lin Ramsey's features. And just him talking through sound design was just kind of just amazing to hear him how he works, particularly with Lin, in terms of how they conceive sound as fundamental, you know, and taking through clips from You Were Never Really Here and talking about creating sound design, a score, you know, and, and how building the editing and, the, you know, the punctuating of sound and how sound here kind of should be different to here and just how you're moving between spaces and different sounds. Yeah. Cute. Yeah.
3: I don't know what the fuck's going on here. I'm just a hard gun,
0: I don't give a shit about the <laughs>
2: pure integrity
4: Governor Williams
2: is a and
4: to figure out what he's going through.
2: and he's a leader so, like, there's a bunch of people trying to help him I <laughs> actually spent a lot of time together during the campaign
3: he's been my mentor in many ways well some of the things
0: that were are supposed to say are true and some are not true there's no question that what I did is wrong envisaging a space you know so like well Kind of telling you those things which you feel but don't can't articulate or realize so for example in you never really here in the in joe's house that he lives in with his mum it's there's no there's no ambient noise there's only room tone so you would think you'd hear the outside world in a tiny little house like that and when as soon as he moves out the door the outside world is noisy you know but it's it creates this really fascinating you know kind of inner sanctum you know which feels right but is not real you know and he was like we never think about realism it's always about design you know it's all about experience and it was and that was a film that you kind of just think yeah her use of sound is always amazing um and it's Paul that kind of does all that um but also yeah Johnny Greenwood's score in that film and how that score plays with sound and an image which again goes back to that Mika Levi thing of yeah two contemporary composers who are kind of not as it's it feels like a different type of scoring, you know, and I'm not I'm sure they're not the, the first people to do this. And, you know, uh, some of our listeners who are more into scores will be like, oh, this person did it first. But it feels like they represent those kind of musicians who are not interested in wholly accompanying the tone of the story. You know, like they'll they'll be in communication with it or in dialogue with it, but they're also doing something else, which is almost subtextual, almost thematic, almost like and Under the Skin, I think, is a film, unlike Monos, which really meets the score in terms of its themes and in terms of its subtext, really, really powerfully. Um, but in Monos, it's brought up to this incredible, almost interpretation of the film through music, which is not not direct. You know, Williams' score for Jaws is perfectly in sync with everything else, and it should be. Monos, it's like Levi's doing something else. And I find that fascinating. And, and seeing where that where that works and where it doesn't, I think, is is again, a reminder of of what film scoring could be, what sound can be, and I guess that's what's been great about this episode is being able to think about the spectrum you know so you can have claire denise Claire Denise you know really un- untangible stuff and jaws at the other end and it's all it's all film sound and it's all these really diverse experiences that you can have uh, listening in a, in a in a cinema space. Yeah, and I think just to finish off,
1: the last thing that really sort of occurred to me, I don't think it occurred to me first time just from watching the film, but it kind of reminded me that a lot of film analysis and film criticism just does not take account of the score. And I think it's really problematic that you could write about the film and try and interpret meaning or try and, you know, have some kind of analysis of, of what you think the film is trying to do, or what the filmmaker is trying to do. And, it, and it, if score is not involved in terms of the emotional impact of the film on you or in terms of how it drives theme or how it drives narrative, then you're almost kind of missing, again, for Midge Costin, you're probably missing half of the movie. But It's almost as if the meaning of what you see on screen is actually driven by the score. So, so taking that out is, it's almost kind of like undermines the very point of, you know, film analysis in a in a way. If you're just taking, if you're just taking the images just as if it was a silent movie, then there's something kind of methodologically problematic about that. I think.
0: Well, yeah, and I think that I think you you can stretch that out into most of the other most of the kind of the film crafts. You know, so much there's this idea that you know editing should be invisible. You shouldn't be able to you know you shouldn't be able to acknowledge cuts. You shouldn't be able to acknowledge sound. You know, Paul Davis was saying that invisibility is not something that he's you know that him and the filmmakers he worked with necessarily interested in they want to draw attention to the sound at certain points and the score at certain points you know this is because they're using all the tools at their disposal and this idea of just seeing the thing as it's played out in front you know with is it's essentially kind of yeah the director and cinematographer bias as to what the where the meaning of the film is contained or where the potential meaning or the reading of the film is contained which not only undoes a lot of the work that of, of of crafts and arts people but yeah kind of limits the potential experiences that can be had with a film it was interesting that when we sort of you you posted on twitter that we were going to talk about joker and i think it was dr sam broadhead one of our listeners um tweeted saying best film i've seen in ages really loved the production design the cinematography and the performance you know, and it's a it, that's that's great, isn't it? You know, like because you can go in and you can see components that are really thrilling and really exciting, and you're able to say, actually, yeah, that there's enough going on here um, without going into Joker, but 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 with any film, you know, there's enough going on here with all the components. But it's being open to finding the thrills in different places. One of the things that my friend said, Have you seen Jokey? I said, No, are you going to go and see it? I said, Yeah, are you excited? I said, Well, I'm more excited now. I know that Mark Bridges, who was the costume designer for Phantom Thread, has done the costumes and my friend was like really you know like but yeah because i love costumes and i love production design and i love score you know like and i want that fully fully rounded experience where possible and i love a score that's working with a text if it's right and i love a score that's working against it you know and i thought i thought that that was what was was great about those pioneers in making waves was you saw how they were you know, in dialogue and interrogating the texts through the tools and through the idea of what sound can be, um, although more Lynch would be great, obviously. But you know, but Walter Murch particularly is is a great evangelist, and he's really he's a really good evangelist for for sound as as kind of one of the key key elements of a film's potential to kind of to, to resonate.
1: Brilliant. Well Neil, I think we've uh, we should just about wrap it up there. I know we've we've kind of run over today, so thanks for uh, for your time. Pleasure to talk as always.
0: Indeed, yeah, it's uh, it's not a problem when we're talking about movies. Um it just means yeah, there's just more there's more sounds that you're going right. to hear. you're going to hear a bath running and um, you're going to hear <laughs> dishwasher you know it's all um, sound design dude it's all, all sound, sound design <laughs> it's all it's all intent uh, um,
1: yeah and so this will this is obviously dropped at the end of or the beginning of November but th- there is definitely going to be a speed episode coming next
0: yeah it's not it's not a figment of uh, of our imagination we, we, we're definitely getting there but yeah well done for kind of pulling these two these two London Film Festival episodes together thanks to everyone who's participated in them in various ways and yeah it's been It's been great to be able to respond to to interesting things that have been happening in these ways. So well done for for putting all that together.
1: Yeah, and I'm looking forward now to even more to getting the the voice episode. So it'll be kind of a nice little double bill we've had over this season to have this episode and then a a one on the cinematic voice, which obviously is uh, related to this subject, clearly. I
0: think it's going to speak back to this one
1: oh yes well put Thank you.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> how, how long did you lay awake at night thinking of that one <laughs> uh, that was the only
0: thing that I could think about when I was watching the documentary
1: okay fair enough okay dude well I'll uh, I'll speak to you soon thanks to all of our listeners for their continued support if you want to support us even more you could go over to the Patreon page um, you can get all our bonus episodes and our newsletters a new one to come out November newsletter to come out very soon indeed and our Joker Bonus chat has just dropped as well. But until next time, this has been The Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening.
0: They and They are beautiful On the hilltops at night He's the widest and the tallest and-